morning. I just moved yesterday. I'm a little tired. My wife is expecting a baby. I'm a little tired. She's also very tired. Probably more tired than I am. Good morning. <laughs> well, like uh, Pastor Kevin said, I'm Derek. I'm the youth pastor here at Glad Tidings, and just so, uh, so thankful that I get to come and share with you once again. This is the second time this month, and so uh, it's always exciting, or it's really scary for you, one of the two. We're in the midst of a sermon series called Seven, the seven vices and the seven virtues. The seven vices being what are commonly referred to as the seven deadly or the seven cardinal sins. And of course, there are opposing virtues. Last week, Pastor Todd talked about gluttony. We got to read a wonderful passage about a really large king. One thing I do remember and I want to point out, though, that Pastor Todd did uh, talk about quite a bit was that understanding the line, the fine line between gluttony and not gluttony can be very difficult. It's a difficult line to define. How do we know when we are overindulging or just simply enjoying something to its fullest extent? It's a difficult line to find. So here in line lies the questions, how should we respond when we notice that we're crossing that line? How do we keep ourselves from crossing the line And how do we identify what the line is in the first place? Because it's likely that each and every single one of us struggle with some form of gluttony, not just food, but many different things that we could overindulge in. Like the wise Pastor Kevin Parks once said, it's not about food and waistlines. We laughed about it a little bit last week, but it's actually very true. Gluttony is overindulging in things from television shows, sports, cars, sports cars. We can even, to the point that it's dangerous, I'm going to tread on a thin line here, we can even overindulge in church attendance. I'm going to come down here for just a quick second. I stole this from my kids. We're going to make that the elephant in the room this morning, okay? It's not mine, it's my kids. I'm going to leave that little elephant there. Who said sure? I heard somebody say that. So this morning, we're going to talk about the opposing virtue from gluttony, self-control. So as usual, we, uh, we hear we believe in the Bible. Hope that's okay with you. If it's not, that's too bad. We're going to read from it this morning. Uh, to see what it says about self-control. So let's stand together as we read. The text will be up on the screen for you. So, hey, there it is. So as I mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm colorblind. So we're not going to read different colors. I'm going to read the regular text, and you are going to read the italicized text. Good? Got it? Wonderful. Here we go. Second Peter 1, 5 to 11 reads, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love.
Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to conform your call to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible that we can read it and we can learn from it. And not just learn from it, but also grow closer to you through it. So Lord, we just pray that this morning that you would help us to draw closer to you, to learn more about ourselves and about you. Help no one to leave here unchanged this morning. We thank you, God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? So now, self-control may sound as though it is probably the most boring virtue in the history of mankind. I get it. I hear the words self-control and generally I think, of, I hear the words, stop that. I hear the words like, stop doing that thing that you enjoy doing right now. Don't do that anymore. That's not fun. You can agree with me that that's not fun. It's okay. Self-control doesn't sound like a lot of fun and no one really enjoys being told to stop doing, doing something that they're enjoying. But a person's ability to exhibit self-control has actually been studied to some great lengths. Many studies and uh, tests have been done. So I'm going to share with you some of the findings that I came across when researching this, okay? What does the research say? Now I'm going to uh, preface this with, uh, let's keep in mind that these are not absolutes. These are just simply correlations that have been found from people who exhibit Self-control, or in our first case here, poor self-control. Poor self-control is linked to things like higher rates of poverty. Poor self-control is rated to poor academic performance. I'll preface this well with, this is at post-secondary levels, not necessarily, you know, we're not asking four-year-olds to... Poor self-control is linked to unsafe communities, both the creation and sustaining of safe communities. And number four is uh, a myriad of preventable health issues. Keep in mind, preventable health issues. These are things like sometimes high blood pressure, diabetes, things like that. Not completely preventable. Good self-control, on the other hand, is linked to things like lower rates of poverty, higher academic performance at a post-secondary level, overall community safety, and people who exhibit good self-control overall experience slightly better health. Now, I'm not suggesting here that the way to be rich, safe, and healthy is to learn better self-control. And I'm certainly not saying that if you lack any of these things, that all of these things will, will, will happen to you. And I'm not saying that if these things are happening to you, that you do lack self-control either. But there is a correlation. And they have related these, these traits together, if you will. And when I see correlations like this, it makes me want to pay attention. Doesn't it with you? Self-control may sound a little bit boring, but it also sounds rather beneficial to our quality of life, does it not? Developing and practicing good self-control sounds to me as though it would lead to a more happy, healthy, and productive life. So, so when we get into this, we need to explore a few different things. So first of all, we're going to explore the neurological side of this, okay? I'm no brain surgeon or anything like that, so I'm, I'm going to start with that. But 
studying this, researching this, what is, what is the brain's job? What is the brain's role in a person's self-control or their ability to, to exercise it? Let's talk about the brain for a little bit. There's this little part of our brain that gets a lot of attention. And it gets a lot of attention because it's responsible for so many things. Okay? It's this part of our brain that's called the prefrontal cortex. Those of you who want a demonstration, this part right here. The very front of your brain. And of the many things that this part of the brain is responsible, three are very pertinent to what we're talking about this morning, okay? So the first one, and I'm just going to read it. If it doesn't sound like my words, it's not. I'm pulling it from, from the research. The first one that we're going to be concerned with is impulse control and the organization of emotional reactions. In other words, how will you respond to emotional trauma and emotional comfort? What is your initial reaction to the emotional occurrences in your life? And when emo your emotions hit a peak, what do you do? How do you respond? The second part is complex planning. Not complex in the, in, in the sense that there's a lot of information, but complex in the sense of seeing the consequences of your actions, the later, future consequences of your actions, your life 10 years from now based on what you're doing now. And number three is prioritizing competing information. This is otherwise known as the ability to ignore distractions or at least recognize the need to ignore unimportant distractions. So our emotional response, our ability to fully understand the consequences of our actions, and our ability to not get distracted. Now there's a little asterisk that I have to put into here, okay? And I feel especially responsible because I'm the youth pastor around here to highlight this portion. The prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that, that is uh, responsible for all of these, doesn't develop in a human being until the ages of around 20 to 25. Our brains develop from back to front, generally speaking. And so that's the last part of our brain to get developed. Women are closer to 21, men are closer to 25. Sorry, guys, we're immature a little bit longer. As your youth pastor, I feel it's my job to express that, you know what, when I hear people come to me and they say, why is my 15-year-old, they're acting so emotional sometimes? I say, yeah, they're, yeah, that's about right. They're emotional. Why does my 17-year-old have no idea what he wants to do with the rest of his life? Because he can't think about it. I don't say can't like he doesn't want to. He probably does really want to, or she. He just literally can't think about it. His brain isn't doing that yet. Why does my 17-year-old child get so distracted at school? Because they, don't, they can't filter it. Literally, their brain can't do it. Why is there so much stress amongst our teenagers in today's society? Maybe it's we're asking them to think about things that they actually cannot think about and putting the pressure on them to make those decisions. Not that they shouldn't be thinking about it at all, but when they're 15, I didn't know what I wanted to do at 15 years old. I had no idea. My kids are two and four, and really little. They don't know how to control their emotional outbursts. We call it immaturity. They just don't know how to think that way. Maybe our teenagers just aren't at the point where they can think that way because, yeah, their brain isn't fully developed yet. 
There's certainly external factors involved, please, I, I understand that, and it's no excuse for teenagers to never exhibit any sort of self-control. We can't just let them do whatever they want all the time. That's not, that's not right either. But, yeah, when they can't think about their life 10 years from now, yeah, that's about right. They, they can't. Asterisk over. Our ability to exhibit self-control on a neurological level really isn't developed until our mid-20s, and for whatever reason, this is the case. I'm not God, I didn't design the brain, I don't know why that is, that's just the way it is. And during our brain's development, certain uh, specific traits each develop in their own timing. So whether that's things like empathy, self-control, things like that, each of them develop in their own timing. And what happens is when we experience trauma in our lives, now this can be self-induced trauma, this can be trauma that just happens because that's life and things happen, um, what happens is that, is that our brain, whatever is developing at that time, our brain kind of stops developing it and kind of moves on to the next thing. And so there are certain traits of our brain that as we grow up, as we develop, as our brain develops, um, there are certain parts of our brain that are left undeveloped. Not to say that they can't be developed later, but they're left at that time. And this doesn't mean that the trait can't be developed, it just means that we have to identify it and work on it a little bit as we get older. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul writes, take every thought captive to obey Christ. It is our responsibility to put our own thoughts under control in every situation. It is our own responsibility to subdue our impulses in order to achieve the longer-term goals that we have. And no matter what, no one really gets a pass on developing the traits that God wants for each and every single one of us to develop. Self-control isn't just a nice thing that we ignore or we make excuses um, why we may have a hard time controlling our responses. Self-control is a trait that obviously benefits our lives. It's foundational for how we follow Jesus. And no matter where we're at in our biological development, no matter what's happened in our lives, it is our responsibility to take every thought captive express some self-control, and obey Christ, no matter how difficult or seemingly impossible it may seem in the situation. So that's kind of our brain's role in the whole thing. What does psychology say? What is the psychology behind self-control? <laughs> so we've looked at some of the practical consequences, both good and bad. We've looked at what happens in our brain as it develops. and what's the, There's a lot of psychology behind why people exercise or don't exercise self-control. Research has traditionally shown that the more time someone spends thinking about what's called a rewarding stimulus, so in other words, the end prize at the end, the more likely they will experience a desire for it. In other words, what you think about, you will work toward. Whatever you think about, you will work toward. The more you think about the consequences or rewards of your action, the more self-control you will exercise in order to avoid it or obtain it. So why do people who become professional athletes, why do they spend so much time training for their particular sport? Because they want to win whatever the coveted prize is, right? If you're a hockey player, you want to win the Stanley Cup. If you're a football player, you want to win the Super Bowl. Or maybe it's the Grey Cup, I don't know. I remember growing up, I, I loved hockey growing up, I still love hockey, it's my favorite sport. To me, there's only two, there's only two sports in the world, there's hockey and there's the other ones just how my brain works. But growing up, I loved hockey, and I, I wanted to play. I wanted to, I wanted to win the Stanley Cup. That's what everyone dreams about who grows up playing hockey. Spent a lot of time on my rollerblades out on the front patio, hitting the garage door with the tennis ball. Sorry, Mom and Dad. Probably the car a few times. Don't tell them. 
And, and I practiced, and my mind was on it. Why? Because I didn't really think about what team I wanted to play for. I didn't really think about where I would play hockey. I thought about winning the Stanley Cup. That's what I worked towards. But at some point, for whatever reason, I stopped thinking about that so much. I stopped dreaming about hoisting the Stanley Cup and parading around the ice. That's just, I just stopped thinking about it. So what happened? I started losing interest in playing hockey professionally. And I started getting interested in music. And I had dreams of playing concerts in front of thousands, hundreds, millions of people. People liking my music. That's what I dreamed about. That was the goal. So what did I do? I focused on music. I learned my instrument as best as I could. I practiced and practiced and practiced. I became a Christian when I was 15 years old, and I developed this love to lead. I developed this love to teach and this love to lead people to Jesus. <coughs> my attention ever since has been to lead in a church and help people know who Jesus is. That's my reward stimulus, if you will. That was loud. So, so what happened? What happened? Well, I began to study and I began to learn about leadership and I went off to Bible college and I took every opportunity that I could to help out in church and do whatever I could. Why? Because my reward stimulus was to lead a church and to lead a church well, lead students well, teach really well, see people come to know who Jesus is. That was the reward stimulus and that's what I focused on. And regardless of whatever the reward stimulus is in your life, whatever the end game is, if you will, whatever you crave, whatever you think about regularly, that is what you will be disciplined to work toward. The more you think about that reward, the more you'll want it. Motivation dictates our self-control. Whatever we're motivated by, that will be how much we express or exercise self-control for that. And if we don't care about much of anything in this world, if we really don't have a care at all, now I'm not saying we have to be worried about everything, but if we don't really care about much, our life will really just consist of whatever life throws at us. And we won't really exercise any self-control in any area because we don't want anything. There's really no reason to exhibit self-control. However, when there's a goal in mind, we will control whatever we need to do or whatever we need to in order to get it. And instead of taking immediate or impulsive actions, we'll plan. Instead of just acting on our feelings, we'll evaluate different courses that we could take. And it will often help us doing things that we'll regret doing later. And, and it will compel us to do things that we need to do at the time. Colossians 3, 1 to 2 says, So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things which, over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. On verse 8 and 9 from the passage we read in Peter this morning, for if these qualities, one of them being self-control, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you want to be productive, self-control will do you well to become a productive person and a productive Christian, by the way. What is the reward stimulus that you're thinking about in your life? What is that reward? What's your end game, if you will? Or do you even have one? 
So that's some of the neurology and the, some of the psychology behind it. What are some of the downsides of self-control? What are some things that we don't like? What's not fun about being self-control? First one is you can't just do whatever you want. That's no fun. Let's all be honest. No one really wants to practice self-control all the time, do we? You, you can be honest. No one wakes up thinking, I can't wait to restrain myself today. Can't wait. Can't wait to hold back. Can act pious all you want, but if we all had to be completely honest with ourselves and with others, we would just love to do whatever we want all the time. It would be great. It'd be great for us. Probably be really chaotic otherwise. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26, and this is about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Even in this case, Moses, one of the great heroes of our faith, gave up the luxuries of the palace that he was entitled to, to live with the Israelites who were slaves, in order to fulfill the purpose that God had set in front of him. Moses practiced quite a bit of self-control here, didn't he? Moses had the end game in mind. He was focused on what he would, would he focused on what he knew would be better in the end. And we all practice self-control from time to time, don't we? Let me be the bearer of bad news. Tomorrow is the dreaded Monday. Nobody likes Mondays. Maybe you do because you happen to maybe get it off or something. But how often do we wake up on a Monday morning and just wish that we didn't have to go to work? But we go. Maybe with an extra coffee, but we go. Why? Well, because it's the right thing to do. We have to. Sometimes we need to give up the things we want to do in, in order to achieve the end game that we have set in our minds. I would love, now I love my job, absolutely love my job. I love where I work, I work here by the way, I love my job, just in case you're wondering. I love my job, I love what I do, I really do. But yeah, there's some mornings I just get up and go, yeah, Moonlight Beach open? Who wants to go fishing? Let's just go somewhere else and let's do something else. Why? Because sometimes that's what I feel like doing. And that's what we all just feel like. But we get up and we do what we know we need to do anyway. Why? Because there's consequences. More often than not, if we don't restrain ourselves, we're going to have to pay the price for the choice we've made, right? While we're on the topic of being completely honest, most of us, most of the time, really, all that's holding us back from doing whatever it is that we want is because we know something bad will happen. Only so many Mondays you can take off unexpectedly before the boss says, see you later. We might lose our job. Maybe our credit card will get declined. Sometimes the things holding us back is someone might find out. Those people at church might see me. This is why it's always good for us to have someone in our lives to hold us accountable because self-control can be tough unless you have someone else helping you to become better. If you're married, this would probably be your spouse. 
My wife is very, very good at this. She has no problem calling me on my stuff. I hate it in the moment. I really do. But I know it's because she wants to make me a better person. Let's do a little exercise, okay? Before we do, I need everyone to promise me one thing. Whatever it is that I ask you to think about right now will remain a secret. No one asks anyone else what they thought about. No one has to tell. Got it? I'm being serious. And those of you who are watching online, please feel free to do this as well. You have to promise as well. I want you to all think about something that you would do. Something you would do that if there were absolutely no consequences in this life or the next. You could walk away from it. No one would call you on it. No one would find out. No one would get hurt. No punishment at all. It's as if the, the event was completely erased from history. Not even God knew about it. What would you do? What would you do? Whatever it is, that just might be the deepest, darkest, innermost struggle of your life. And it might be the area where you need to practice the most self-control. Consequences aren't fun, are they? Nobody likes consequences. But they keep us out of trouble quite often. And they keep us from doing the things that we otherwise would have no control ourselves to stay away from. So that got heavy for a minute. Let's lighten it up a little, okay? What's good about being self-controlled? What's great? What's a fun thing about being self-controlled? Well, the first thing is that opportunities open up in your life. Opportunities are availed to you. In Titus 1.8, self-control is listed as a biblical qualification for leaders in the church. Not just pastors, but elders, deacons, all the... Whatever, you want to, whatever words you want to use. Any leader in the church, self-control is a biblical qualification. Have you ever wondered why you may not be a leader in the church or at your work? Maybe you lack self-control. Or maybe there's a lack of passion to practice self-control for. No one wants to stomp out anyone's passion, but we need to control how that passion comes out. I'm going to be a little cheeky on this, so bear with me. I often find, um, if, if you watch the news, anytime a government makes a really big decision about something, often what you'll see is people protesting, right? I'm not saying protest rallies are bad in and of themselves, but they're often great examples of how people let their self-control fall by the wayside. People get upset about a decision or something, so they rally together, and sadly, so often, it turns fairly violent. And what about smashing windows and burning police cars will solve any problem. Your actions are probably actually drawing more attention away from the point you're trying to make. Passion is great. Passion is a good thing. But, passion in the, but in the midst of the passion of enjoying something or trying to make a statement, we must control ourselves so that our passion is properly utilized. Our emotional outbursts don't take over and we and we stop thinking about the consequences of our actions. We need to look ahead, look forward. See how we're, what we're doing now affects later. 
one way that I evaluate leadership that I, in the areas of ministry that I oversee, especially my youth leaders, is I, is I look at someone's ability to control their emotional outbursts, control their feelings and express it in a calm and collected manner. People who look beyond a particular you know, night of ministry or look beyond a particular event and say, and just look ahead. They look beyond that particular night and they don't get tossed around by every single great idea. They don't get distracted very easily. Opportunities will open up to you when you exhibit good self-control. What else is good about self-control? Well, you get to understand the will of God. That's a privileged point, isn't it? Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is perf- good, and perfect, good and acceptable and perfect. What does this world say? Well, if it feels good, it must be good. And if it feels bad, must be bad. Is that really the, we want, the way we want to dictate morality based on our feelings? Something that's arbitrary, and different from person to person? So by going against this pattern that this world is trying to teach us, and going against our feelings at times, And we allow God to transform us by the renewing of our mind. Notice it doesn't say heart. By the transforming of the renewing of our minds, then we'll be able to discern what the will of God is. Why would God entrust knowledge of his will with someone who can't control themselves? I don't trust details of my life with immature people. If I know someone talks too much or just doesn't know how to use that information, I don't tell them detailed things. You want to know God's will? Stop always acting on feelings and impulses, and maybe you'll figure it out. So do you remember the elephant in the room? The pretty pink elephant? I have daughters. They're cute. I mentioned at the beginning that even church attendance can become a form of gluttony that I believe is actually really doing a lot of damage to our Western Christianity. And a friend of mine once posted this on social media, this quote. Now, I'm not sure if it's theirs or if they quoted it from somewhere. They didn't attribute a quote to it. So, I don't, like I said, I don't know if it's theirs or if they pulled it from somewhere. But I think it speaks volumes to, to this point today. It's going to be up on the screen and I'll read it to you as well. For a Christian to live in the most Christianized culture on the planet, filled with an endless supply of Christian churches, books, TV programs, radio shows, websites, conferences, blogs, tweets, and Bibles in literally hundreds of translations and say, I'm not being fed? That's like a morbidly obese person sitting down for their 11th plate in an all-you-can-eat buffet and screaming at the waitress, bring me more food now. I believe we have a bit of a spiritual obesity issue in the West where we're more concerned with getting ourselves to church than getting others to Jesus. We measure our Christianity based on how many times we attend church rather than how often we're sharing about Jesus with other people. Now, the fact that you're here this morning, first of all, is a good thing, and I'm not saying we should stop going to church because that, be, that would be dumb. And that's actually in the Bible that we should attend church. But the fact that you're here this morning doesn't make you a Christian 
It doesn't make you even a good Christian. The fact that I'm up here doesn't make me a good Christian. And one of my professors in Bible college quoted this one time. He said, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. If all we do as as Christians is overindulge in feeding ourselves spiritually, we're not actually fulfilling the final command of Jesus. We're practicing a little bit of spiritual gluttony. Think about Jesus' disciples, 12 guys who followed him for three years, then went out and literally turned the world upside down. And now we have the world's largest religion at nearly 2.2 billion adherents. Started with 12 people. If 12 people can turn a world upside down, I don't know how many people are here, 400? Can we change the city of Sudbury? Oh, come on. Really? Yes. We have to do something? Oh. It's our natural tendency to think that following Jesus exists in the confines of church, but following Jesus isn't confined to anywhere. Church is safe. We advertise church as a safe place. It's a safe place to come, safe place to bring your kids, safe place to... But Christianity, following Jesus, church is safe, yeah, but following Jesus is anything but safe. Following Jesus drags us out of our comfort zone. Following Jesus compels us away from doing things that we want to. And it often pushes us into doing things that we should be doing. If only we had the self-control to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, just like Jesus commanded us to do so long ago. I don't like when people say amen so much, but there's no amen to that. So how do we cultivate self-control in our lives? We know it's a good thing on a societal level. We get, we talked about that at the beginning. We know it's something that God has commanded us because it's in, his, in the Bible many, many, many times. We're only glancing over some of the verses. How do we get there? Well, we can't always suppress the way we're feeling. And probably suppressing the way that we feel isn't always good because, well, we're feeling that way. We're feeling like we want to do this, but we know we should do that. We can't ignore the way that we're feeling why don't we rechannel that, and instead of suppressing our feelings, let's replace them with something else. Don't suppress, replace. Suppressing the thoughts in our lives, will be, they'll always creep back. So let's find a way to deal with them rather than get rid of them. Ephesians 4.28 says this, did you, use, did you used to make ends meet by stealing? Well, no more. Get an honest job so that you can help others who can't work. We said earlier that passion is a good thing, but how do we channel that passion? Passion for something that we should avoid could be replaced by passion for something that is actually beneficial. I asked my brother if I could share this story with him, or with you actually, sorry. So I'm gonna, uh, my brother, when he was about 14 years old, I could be getting the details wrong, but he was about 14 years old, my brother took up smoking. And he smoked for many years, well into his late 20s, so literally about half his life at that point. For a number of years, he wanted to quit. It was really hard for him. He always said, I want to quit, but it's just hard. And things came up, and he ended up, uh, he, dri- he drove truck for a living. He drove semis. And so when you're driving, not that driving is a hard work, is, isn't hard work. It is hard work. I come from a line of truck drivers. But, um, you know, there's, you're just kind of focusing on what you're doing. So what do you do? You have to do something. So 
what would he say? Well, my brother would always say, well, you know, there's not much to do, so I smoke. But in order to quit, he had to evaluate what was, what was actually making him smoking. Was it the desire? Because he, he wanted to quit, so it's not the desire. What was it? Well, he realized it was something more to do with, well, something to do. So, starting about 10 years ago, every time I would go down and I would visit my family and I would see my brother, um, my brother always had a toothpick in his mouth and he had a pen that he would fiddle with. And I don't know how long that went on. It was a few years. Actually, I called my brother this morning. He finally got back to me and said that he could, I, I, that he could share the story. And I asked him, and he said, oh yeah, that's funny. I'm chewing on a toothpick right now. So he's still doing it. That was almost 10 years ago now that my brother has quit smoking. What did he have to do? Evaluate what it was and replace it with something else. Now, arguably, yes, he kind of picked up another bad habit in the process by toothpicks and twiddling pens, but I think that one's far less harmful to him than cigarettes. Now he's 10 years, almost 10 years smoke-free. What helped him control himself was to replace his actions with something else. Don't suppress your feelings, replace them with something else. Second is don't suppress, plan. Acting on certain temptations may very well be something that you always struggle with. We're in a Pentecostal church, we like to talk about victory in Jesus, we like to talk about that, and sometimes, yes, God takes away our desires for certain things. Sometimes God takes away the temptation. He removes it from our lives. Absolutely, that can happen. I believe that that can happen. But even Paul writes that he prayed for God to remove what he called the thorn in his side. We never fully learn what that thorn is, but we know one thing about it. He prayed three times and God didn't take it away. You know, instead, God answers him with, do you know how God answers him with that? Paul says, God, take away the thorn in my side, and God answers with, my grace is sufficient for you. Don't you hate when God answers like that? My grace is sufficient for you. There just might be something, a sin, a temptation, that you wrestle with for your entire life. And you're going to have to learn how to wrestle with it and deal with it. The question is no longer, can no longer be, why God, why? Why aren't you taking this away? The question becomes, how will you respond when temptation comes? What will you do? How will you respond when you're tempted with whatever it is? What are you going to do? Do you even have a plan? Maybe it's a matter of making that little plan and say, you know what? When A happens, I'm going to do B instead. I'm going to force myself away from what I feel like doing back to the thing that I know I should be doing. And number three is remember the last time. Remember the last time you did something where you were maybe a little out of control and you did something that you regret? Maybe it's something you said to your coworker or your spouse or your kids. Maybe it was a time you did something erratic while you were driving and you're still paying higher insurance for it or living with the guilt of it. Maybe it's a time you slipped into temptation and you turned your back on God just for a moment, just for an evening, for a fleeting pleasure of sin. How did you feel afterwards? And what makes you think it will make, you will feel any different this time? 
hate calling people to remember bad feelings, but sometimes we have to remember the bad feelings that we had because it keeps us away from having them again. It won't feel any different this time. It never does. It never will. Self-control is no fun in the moment. It doesn't always feel good to exercise self-control. But it sure beats beats the feeling we get when we give in. And it sure is much more fun when we get to reap the rewards later, right? Opportunities open up to us. We learn what the will of God is. So the question really is, in what areas are you lacking self-control? And what areas or what identifiable moments in your life do you need to redirect your attention? Do you have a plan to respond when temptation shows its ugly face in your life? What will you do? How will you respond? What can you do otherwise? I'm going to ask you to stand. We're going to pray together. And maybe think about someone you could have in your life to help you hold, hold you accountable. Maybe find the areas in your life where, yeah, you know what, I give in so much here. What could I do instead? Maybe it's a matter of you need to write it down and put it in a place that you'll see every day. Maybe it's a little note in your phone that every time you go into that application, it's a little reminder to you. I have one for myself. I keep it in my notes app, I keep it at the top, and every time I open it, I'm reminded of that thing. Put that in my pocket. Maybe you need to develop your plan for how you can keep yourself away from temptation, turn the other way when temptation comes in, and practice a little bit more self-control in your life. I'm going to pray for you and we're going to get going. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that, God, your word speaks volumes to us and that you want to see the best for our lives. That you want us to exhibit self-control, not to, not to take our fun away, not to get rid of the things we like doing, but ultimately so, so we can learn your will and that we can be more productive in our lives and we can be a better example to our world of the amazing God that we serve. So we thank you, God, that you want to do this in us. Help us to cultivate this this self-control in our lives so that we can be better witnesses for you and we can be more productive for you. God, be with us now. Be with us this week. And Lord, we thank you again for all that you're doing in our church and in our city. We ask for your blessing. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.